We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We want to believe our love is an eternal flame. It will last until the twelfth of never, or at the very least until the end of time. Obviously, we know this is only true in pop songs, but we either close our eyes to the inconvenient facts, or comfort ourselves with the idea that it's a long, long time away, or that we will somehow both die at the same time. As a marital therapist, I know how messy love can be on a day-to-day basis too. People can fall out of love, fall in love with somebody else, and that love can turn to bitterness, anger, and even hatred. So the question I'm asking today is, how can we still love even when we're frightened or hurting, and in the knowledge that nothing lasts forever, even love? My witness is Matthew McKay, PhD, who's a clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and professor of psychology at the Wright Institute, a graduate school of psychology in Berkeley, California. He's also the author of the wonderfully titled book, Love in the Time of Impermanence. To quote your book, everything we know and count on and love is impermanent. Now, we like to close our eyes, but you believe it's important to face the truth. Why? It's important to face the truth because everything changes. What we love changes. We know this from our own experience, that the things that we love, the people that we love, their personalities change, their needs change, they change in their appearance, in their attractiveness, and the things that we love also change, erode, shift over time. So everything that we love, animate and inanimate, ultimately undergoes transformation. And that experience of impermanence, that it not only changes, but often changes in ways that the form is lost or the form changes in ways that are not what we once fell in love with. This is a profound and deep truth that we live in in this world. In fact, One of the ways I think about it is that we have a lifelong course in the school of impermanence. We we are here (laughs) constantly encountering impermanence in every aspect of our life, and everything we love is going to change. And so there's, there's this task that we have on this planet and in this life, which is how can we love? How can we continue to love, hold on to love in the face of profound, and constant change and impermanence. So that's that's kind of the, the question. And there are some some answers that I think we can use. But I think that's we we live in a soup of impermanence, and that is our our condition, our predicament. But we're like the three monkeys. We close our eyes, we close our mouth. Well, actually, we don't close our mouth so much, but we close our ears and we close our eyes to this this thing. But and what's the danger of closing our eyes and closing our ears off to your message? Well, the danger, I think, is in assuming that love either is or isn't. It exists or it doesn't exist. And that the feeling of love 
is what we count on, and we hope that it will persist. And I think the danger is not realizing that love requires action. It's not a feeling. Feelings come and go. Feelings shift constantly. In fact, even when you you know are first in love with someone, that feeling of love is impermanent. It's it's there sometimes. It's not there sometimes. So recognizing that love isn't a feeling, but it's action. It's intention. It's what we do. I love that. Love is not a feeling. It's an action. So what is the action? Well, in my view, there are at least, you know, four pieces of love or four aspects of love that all are necessary for us to maintain love in our relationships. The first is just caring, caring about the well-being of who or what we love, that that matters to us. The second thing is knowing, knowing what we love. And this is a problem I think a lot of people have. They, they think they love, but they don't, they don't really know. They don't really see what they are loving. Or they think they see what they're loving. Or they think they see what they're loving. Or they're projecting their own ideal on the beloved. But in fact, you know, to really know what we love or who we love, we have to know what their needs are, their values, their fears, their aversions, their preferences, you know, the emotional pain that they feel. You know, there are so many things. And these things keep changing. It's not like we encounter someone, we begin to love them, and they're a fixed entity. They are evolving, changing, shifting, and are in them, themselves impermanent. And so knowing them and seeing them means actually paying attention to all the ways they're changing over time. That's why when we're in relationships, we check in with each other all the time. How are you doing? What's going on? What are you feeling? What do you need right now? That How are you hurting? All of those things are part of seeing and knowing the beloved. So, so far of these four elements of love, these four actions, you've got care and knowledge. What's number three? The third thing is compassion. And compassion is is really important part of love because it's recognizing that there's pain. Compassion is knowing and seeing the pain that the other experiences. And it's another thing as well. It's having a desire or an intention to do something to respond to that pain to support the beloved in some way in the face of that pain. So all of these these, these pieces, care, knowledge, and compassion, get wrapped up in the last piece, which is intention. This is how all of it gets turned into action. It's not just merely, I care, I know, I see your pain, but it's, I take action to express care, to find out about what's going on, to really see you, and express my compassion for your pain. So this is all action that I'm taking. Again, it's not feeling, it's it's what I'm doing in the relationship. And I have to continue to do this in order to hold on to love. So it's not something that I did in the beginning of the relationship and now I can just coast forever. I have to continue to do this every day, to care, to see, to notice the pain, and to intend to respond to the beloved with this knowledge. And we'll look later in the interview about how we combat emotional distance through looking through those four lenses. So um, that's important. But I sort of want to get a little bit more background into this topic before we, we move on to that, which is, you know, to find out a bit more about you and how you came to actually write a book about love in the age of impermanence. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the backstory. Well, I think there's two important parts of my 
life history that I guess, you know, really influenced the writing of this book. I mean, the first is that I lost my son 14 years ago. And in the course of of seeking him, of looking for him, continuing to to seek to connection him. to him and continue to love him, exactly. And then learning how to make contact with him, how to channel and connect and have conversations with him was hugely important because what I learned there was that love is enduring, that love transcends death. You know, that death has no dominion over love, that, that, that relationships continue even after the transition to the afterlife. So, so that was really important for me to learn that, that love is not impacted by death. In, in fact, if anything, if we open to connect to those on the other side, our relationships continue in really vibrant ways. The second thing I guess that's influenced me a lot is that I'm, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a couples therapist, a psychologist, and I've worked with couples for more than 40 years. I've done 35. So <laughs> so we're in this together. Too. Yeah. <laughs> we've been I, I, around a while. <laughs> yeah. And so when you work with couples, as you have and I have for a long period of time, you have witnessed the death of love multiple times. And you've seen what happens to people that love appears to be lost. And one of the things that, you know, I learned that had the biggest impact on me is that love is most frequently lost through judgment, through turning our experience of the other into a good, bad judgment. You know, this is good. That's bad. I don't like this. I like that. And as soon as we start to see the other through a lens of judgment, it begins to erode our love behavior. We stop acting on love. And so these two things happen kind of simultaneously. One is we begin to see the other through judgment, good and bad. We begin to see all these parts of them we don't like, and we withdraw. We withdraw, we pull back. And in pulling back, we stop acting on love. And we think that that the feeling of love will endure, but it doesn't. The feeling of of love, which is not love, but that, that sense of being in love is very much impacted by judgment and very much impacted by withdrawal. And so we find ourselves eventually on the outside of love. Love is gone. And so I've just seen this happen over and over with couples. And I see that there are ways to stop it, to to reverse it. But the fundamental thing that ends up killing love is judgment. And it therefore must be incredibly important that we're able to spot when we're judging but um, my suspicion is it might be quite hard to spot when we're judging because we sort of do it all the time. You know, do I want tea or coffee? And we have to make a judgment to decide whether I want tea or coffee. It's a sort of almost an automatic kind of thing. How do you help people realise when they're judging and to stop judging it? Well, you know, this is where impermanence comes in because when we see something change in our relationship, we start the relationship, you know, the relationship is wonderful, there's limerence, it all it feels great. We've, we've, we're fully engaged. And what happens is things start to change. Things start to shift. The impermanence sets in. And what we do is we respond to change with judgment. Oh, this isn't like it used to be. Something's different here. What's wrong? There's something wrong. There's something bad. And so each time we experience change and that the relationship is different than we expected or once viewed it to be, 
the reaction is to that disappointment that it's different. So I cope with disappointment by making a judgment. This isn't what it used to be. What's wrong here? What happened? And then that judgment leads to withdrawal and eventually disconnecting and not acting on love. And then the love really erodes quickly. So there's a sequence here, but impermanence is a big part of it because judgment is a response to things are different than I wanted them to be. And it's a way of coping with disappointment. And which really sort of answers my very first question. Why is it so important to accept impermanence? Because if we don't, we're we're fighting against the nature of life. Uh, That's the first problem, but it's going to lead us to judgment and judgment kills love. Excellent. The only one problem with this whole interview is you're saying so many interesting things that I'm pulled in different directions. But there's something you said a little bit earlier that I have to come back to, which is the whole topic of being able to channel and speak to your son. Because you and I have a very similar kind of background. We're both from the world of psychology. And for me, when I read that part of the book is channeled with your son, I was thinking, oh, I mean, what I found was some of the most profound and the most meaningful and the most touching parts were the bits that were channeled. But I had a little bit of a, how shall I put it? I had a bit of a, I think I made a judgment, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. So I wonder if you could just tell me a bit about your journey, because I would imagine that before all of this happened, you would have also been a little bit surprised at the idea of including in a book channeling from somebody who was no longer alive. Uh, Am I right about that? Or have you always been open to those ideas? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've been pretty agnostic most of my life in terms of what is going on on the other side and the ability to connect to the dead or anything like that was not part of my experience. And it only became part of my experience after Jordan died, where I felt this almost compelled to find him, to look for him and to find a way to connect him. So that, you know, and I went through all kinds of strategies, if I could put it that way, you know, using mediums. I, you know, worked with a psychologist named Alan Botkin doing something called induced afterlife communication. Uh, And I did actually make contact with Jordan via that. I could hear his voice and so forth. But I learned how to do hypnotic regressions where you can look into the past life and then from there to the life between lives and the afterlife and, and to actually have help people experience what the afterlife looks like and also to make contact with people there. But the thing that really changed everything for me was working with the late Ralph Messner, and he taught me how to channel. Because all of these communications were sort of one-sided, you know, you, you know whether you're talking to a medium or these, these communications often are that you just hear from your beloved, and you get some sort of information, but you don't actually have a conversation. And when, when I learned how to channel, I could have a conversation. And at that point, Jordan and I began conversing regularly, and and then at some point he suggested doing a book, which was the the story of how I found him and connected to him with Seeking Jordan. Then he decided that we should do a book on helping people with the fear of death and helping them see what the afterlife looks like and how to prepare for it. Came the luminous landscape of the afterlife. And then uh, the feeling was that there was something to be said or something we could teach about love and how important it is and how it endures and how we can hold on to it in the face of pain. So those were projects that he really proposed to me. 
And that's how they all, all these books came about. And how did you feel contacting a, your agent or your editor and saying, look, I've been channeling and my son wants me to write this book? That must have been very difficult. <laughs> I mean, put it this way, the, you know, I've, I've written a lot of books on psychology and, and psychotherapy, and the publisher of those books would not have been interested in these books. So I had to find publishers who do care and want to explore the spiritual aspects of life. So yes, the publishers that are interested in evidence-based therapy are probably not the same folks who want to publish a book about my communications with my son and all of what I've learned from that. I think that at this point, it would be really nice to have a little bit of your son's voice that was channeled. Have you got a copy of the book? Would you like to select something? Well, yeah, I can cut a couple of things. One is that Jordan says that love is simple. It's caring for and seeing the other. Love is doing in each moment what relationship requires. And I've appreciated that because it sort of distills for me kind of the essence of what, what love looks like and feels like. So this is something else. He says, caring reflects a known truth that this being, object, or place comes from the mind of all and is like no other. It exists in a field of specialness and intrinsic worth. Worth and value don't come from being loved. Love and caring arise from the unique beauty and value of everything we come to know. All that we care for is irreplaceable and therefore precious. Its essence, its presence in our consciousness matters deeply. And so it will always be carried inside of us. So he's, he's talking about love coming from seeing the irreplaceability of this thing that we care about. I mean, I think that gives us a flavor of the depth of the things he's saying, because if we actually accept that, you know, this day is impermanent, then it is more precious than if we sort of just think, well, we've got just one day after another, after another, after another. The fact that you know, we're not going to be here, here together. This moment here is impermanent. That makes our conversation here that little bit more precious, doesn't it, if we're yeah. aware of that? This is precious and irreplaceable. It is unique. Everything that we love is precious, irreplaceable, and unique, and it will change. And so those, those things put together, I think, are the essence of what puts us in this very difficult position where we live in a world of change and impermanence, and yet we're trying to hold love in the face of all of that. And that's, that's our condition. And Jordan sometimes says that it, it really comes down to this, that we come to this planet to learn how to love in the face of pain and loss. That's, that's what we're really learning about. And you know what is incredible? At this moment, I was about to quote that sentence to you and to ask you to pull that out. So you've come to this planet to learn to love in the face of pain. So let's let's really unpack that idea. Well, if you have some sense of the afterlife of of the spirit world that our our consciousness continues once we're no longer embodied, one of the aspects of the spirit world that I encounter all the time when I hypnotize people and help them kind of enter and observe their life in spirit, one of the aspects is that love is easy. Love is how communication occurs. Love connects everything. And it, it's not hard. And, and, and it's, just, it's just a given. It's, just, it's almost like the air that 
we breathe here in in the spirit world. Love is how everything connects. And so what we come here to do is to learn how to love in the face of difficulty. In this material world, there are all kinds of things that get in the way of love. I mean, just silly examples like a parent comes home from a difficult day at work. The child is is themselves upset, whiny. They need help with their homework. And love would have you sit down with that child, comfort the child, and support and help the child. Except you're tired, you're exhausted, you're pissed off, and you're struggling with all this pain. And so we come here to learn how to love in the face of that pain. We can't have that experience, and we can't learn that in the world of spirit. We can only learn that on the material plane. You can only learn that on a planet like this. I mean, it's a silly example, but it's very real. How do you love that child when you're exhausted and angry? And that becomes the central question of our lives in some way. Another example, you know, you're with your partner, and your partner complains about something about you, and you suddenly feel this huge surge of shame and hurt. And it makes you want to get angry or just walk out and withdraw. And so the pain is getting in the way. Now, how would you respond to that if you came from love? For example, if you wanted to know what your partner really needed, you wanted to see them, you wanted to get, you cared about what they're struggling with. You wanted to understand their pain that led them to this, this criticism or the complaint. If you were going to act on love, your behavior would be very different. But that's the hard work of this planet and these lives that we live. So loving in the face of pain would be sort of listening and acknowledging your partner's distress, even, it's the big difficult part, even when you're the source of that upset. Because it's easy, it's easy to be, you know, when their boss is being horrible to them, it's easy to, to be with that distress. But when it's something you've done, it's very easy to defend the fact that you didn't buy the milk or whatever it was you were asked to do, rather than acknowledge and accept that your partner is upset and annoyed with you because they asked you to do something and you'd forgotten it because it wasn't on the top of your mind. And some of the biggest pain that we struggle with is the pain of shame, that there's something wrong with us, and the pain of deprivation, that there's something we desperately need almost like the air that we breathe. We need something desperately and we, we're not going to get it. And these kind, this kind of pain often interacts in, in couple relationships, you know, where one partner is struggling with shame and the other partner is struggling with deprivation. They're hungry. They need something tremendously. And then what happens is the partner who is struggling with deprivation makes a complaint and says, oh my God, I, I need this or that. There's something wrong in our relationship. The partner who struggles with shame feels overwhelming, like, like there's something wrong with me. Oh my God, there's, I'm bad, I'm wrong. And they withdraw. And then the partner who's feeling deprived feels even more deprived and overwhelmed with pain. Then they complain, creating more shame. And around and around they go. Each person's response, withdrawal or complaining, adding to the pain. And you've described in a beautiful way exactly what happened with a couple in my therapy room last night, where the distress was a very high nature, because it's exactly what you're talking about. It is very difficult to love in the face of pain and to act on love, even when you are afraid, you know, that you're going to perhaps be rejected. That's, my God, that's a tough one to learn. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is 
and I'll bet you anything that you do this in your work, I do it in my work, is teaching people how to act on love, how to respond to each other based on their on their deep value of caring and loving in the face of these moments where they're so in so much pain, when they're feeling so much shame or feeling so deprived or whatever the pain is. How do you act on love when you're hurting so much? And that becomes the central focus of the therapy. So let's try and answer that question. How do you love when actually you're in terrible pain and you want to close down or kick out? Well, the first thing is that we have to kind of accept that relationship has a lot of pain in it. This life has a lot of pain in it. And one of the the ways we get in trouble in our lives and in our relationships is like, I can't have this pain. I can't have this. I got to get rid of it. I have to push it away. I have to do whatever I want. I have to suppress it. You know, I'm instead of feeling this shame, I'm going to get angry or I'm going to withdraw and run away. Or instead of feeling this deprivation and this loss and this hunger, I'm going to attack or belittle. So the problem is that, I mean, the first problem is the non-acceptance of pain. Yeah. Uh, pain shows up in life and it shows up in our relationships. And I talked about this earlier in terms of impermanence. Things change in the relationship. The person changes and how they respond and even how they look and how they act changes over time. And if we respond to that pain of disappointment that they've changed with judgment, with attacking or withdrawing, then the love begins to erode. So the first thing is pain is inevitable. How can I accept that this is happening to me right now? But one of the advantages, if you accept that love is impermanent, then it's easy to see that pain is impermanent as well, because everything's impermanent. I'm not going to be in pain forever. It might feel like it at this moment, but this pain is a passing pain. Pain comes and goes. It's true. But here's the thing that I've seen over and over again, and I'll bet you have too, that the attempt to get rid of pain makes it worse. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's the central problem in our relationships. Something happens, something disappoints, something doesn't feel good, and we try to fix it or get rid of it by withdrawing, by attacking, by doing something to try to do something to suppress or push the pain away. And in doing that, things get worse. You know, to go, let's go back to our couple, the partner who feels shame and withdraws and the partner that feels a lot of deprivation and kind of attacks. They're both coping with their pain, with, in one case with withdrawal, in the other case by attacking. But what's happening is the pain's getting worse. The relationship is falling apart. They're losing the sense of trust and, and engagement and support that the relationship once offered each of them. And so when we try to push away pain in these, in these destructive ways, it ends up actually making our pain worse, making the deprivation worse. The, the partner who's felt deprivation is, feels even more because the other partner is withdrawing. And the partner who feels shame feels even more because the other partner is attacking. And so all of these attempts to get rid of pain actually backfire and make it worse. And that's the first thing that we have to help people who love each other and want to hold on to love understand that their attempts to get rid of pain usually are making things worse and usually are eroding love and eroding the relationship. So when we have emotional distance, which we've got at this moment in our case that we're working through, there are four things that you say that we can do, and we're going to come back to our four ingredients for love. These are active caring, active 
active knowing, active compassion, and active intention. So let's go through how could active caring help us with this scenario? So it starts with actually kind of through the knowing piece. Um, one of the things that I want to help people understand is who is this person you're with? Who is this person you love right now? Now, you may have had some ideas about them five years ago or 10 years ago, but right now, how have they changed and who have they become? And that's where we have to kind of go back to encountering the person as they are. So there's a lot of exploration of, you know, what do they need right now? What hurts them right now? What scares them right now? How do they understand the relationship? What are their abilities and limitations? What are their aversions? What's, what turns them off and upsets them? What is their history? You know, the pain that they've gone through that's now getting echoed and somehow triggered by things that are going on in the relationship. So all of that becomes really important to get that on the table, to be able to see that. And by seeing it, now we can move back to caring and to compassion. I care about the pain they're in and I care about their welfare because I see them. I get who they are now. They've been obscured because I've been running away from my own pain. I've been disappointed by the way they've changed. I've been judging them. And all that has obscured my ability to see who they really are and to start, again, caring about them and recognizing the pain. And then it's also gotten away of my ability to act on love, the intention to be and embody love. And so now what we begin to look at is how do we turn love into, into an active behavior and an active intention. So right now you're triggered. Right now you're in pain. What would love have you do right now? What would love look like right now? How would you embody and enact love right now at this moment when you're hurting? And that's a lot of the work is to help people figure that out and to actually do it, to actually figure out how, how can I bring the intention to love into this moment when I'm triggered and hurting? And what would that look like? And then actually do it literally kind of coaching people to do it. And in a way, that's what the book is about, is how to coach you to act on love in the face of, of struggle and pain. One of the things that you talk about is how gratitude cleans the wounds of life. And what is happening with our imaginary couple is they're both acting from their wounds effectively, aren't they? That's what's happening. So they're acting from the wounds of life, which is, you know, effectively what happened in their childhood, the other things that have, have recompounded that, that feeling of deprivation or shame or being attacked when actually there isn't supposed to be an attack. So explain to me how gratitude might help clean out these wounds, and actually get us into a better place when it comes to our relationship. I'm, I'm really glad to be talking about that because it's, it's such an important piece. But you see, what happens is that when our relationships and our experiences of, of those we love undergo the sense of impermanence, right? something changes, remember we talked about, then we get disappointed. It's not like it used to be. And we start judging and, you know, what's wrong with them? What, this is bad. That's wrong. This, you know, why are you like that? And what gratitude does is it redirects our attention away from what's different and what's lost and from our disappointment and from our pain. And it directs our attention to what we have right now and, and what we've had in the past. What is this relationship right now? What parts of it am I grateful for? So it completely shifts attention away from what's wrong to what's right and what was always right and what we've shared together over the years. 
I mean, maybe an example that's not perfect, but, you know, like my wife and I are up in years and we like to go canoeing. And, you know, I could be focusing on how we aren't physically what we once were and not as strong as we once were and not, and, you know, life is more of a struggle with aches and pains and illnesses and so forth. I could be focusing on how things have changed. Our bodies have changed. Or I could focus on all the beautiful times that we've been out canoeing together. And here we get to do it again. And we're having a, a conversation that feels good. And that we've had so many conversations over 40 years that have felt good and we've learned from. And I could focus on gratitude for what we have and what, what we have had. Or I can focus on what an incredible struggle it is to get into the canoe sometimes and to have these moments together and that we're not the same as we used to be. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter because I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it'll become a shared space somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast editions. Past episodes have called into question issues like, so you're married to a narcissist? How vulnerable is your marriage to an affair and why sex disappears in long-term relationships? You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com, so please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes. If you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, you can also find out how you can send a letter in that I can share with my witnesses here on The Meaningful Life. And thank you very much for this one that I'm going to share with Matthew. My wife and I have known each other for over 12 years and have been married for six of them. I'm in the Navy and get deployed overseas. I know that being apart is an added stress to the relationship, but she said that she's fine and there is no need for me to worry. We've had our problems early on, but worked through them with the help of counselling and also just talking to each other. Up to now, it seemed everything was amazing and it couldn't be better. I'm currently deployed and roughly one month from coming home and was receiving the nicest emails about how she couldn't wait to see me and how excited she was. Then all of a sudden, she stopped talking to me entirely. I could tell something was wrong, so I asked and she told me she wasn't in love with me anymore. She told me that she feels like we have always been just best friends and also that all of her life she feels like she was being someone else in a relationship instead of being herself single and her own person. I immediately asked a million questions, including why and how can I fix this? I've since pulled back the reins and given her space that she's asked for. I stopped talking to her and writing her every day like we've done for the past six months. What can I do when I get back from my current tour of duty? All I want to do is ask her all these questions again, and I'll just get the same response from everything again. I don't know. So, Matthew, what were your thoughts when you read that letter? Just the pain that the letter writer must feel to have the whole relationship shift suddenly 
and feels like, you know, being in a car crash, you're, you're driving along, you're looking at the countryside and everything's lovely and suddenly you're in a twist of metal. So, I mean, it's overwhelmingly painful. I do think that probably at this point, it doesn't make sense to speculate on what's changing or what's going on for his wife. We don't know. It certainly happened suddenly, appears to be sudden. I think the question in my mind is how, how can we act in love on love in the face of this change? I mean, this is an example, a profound example of impermanence, of, of something is very different for his partner. And while we don't know what it is exactly, what would love have us do in the face of this change? And the first thing is, to, yeah, I think what he's doing already is to give the partner a little bit of room to kind of work on what their experience is and maybe learn more about what's going on with them. But also when he comes back, what would love have him do? Well, one thing is to learn about her needs and what's changing for her and, and to spend some time trying to understand the new person, this person who's evolved and changed in some pretty dramatic way. You know, so seeing and knowing becomes really, really important and understanding whatever pain she may have experienced. There may be some aspect of the relationship that's been ongoingly painful for her that he didn't understand and perhaps he, she didn't even understand. And let's see if we can learn about that and have compassion for that. And then to see in what way can we hold on to love? Love doesn't mean that you have to have the same kind of relationship. You know, our relationships can change in their structure and still hold on to love. I have a very good friend who's, you know, who's still married, but no longer lives with his wife and has gone on to different kinds of relationships with other people and yet maintains a very close relationship to his wife, a relationship of love. They see each other a lot. They're committed. They care for each other when they get sick and so on. What I'm getting at is it may be that the marriage or the partnership needs to change in its form, but love could still be present for them. And so, so what would love look like in this new relationship and learning about that? for both of them. So, I mean, those are things that come to mind anyway. I'm, I don't have the answer as to why the change occurred. I can't imagine it necessarily, but I do think that in the face of that change, the answer is let me know you and understand you and let me find out how we can have love in a new relationship that has a different form. Because I don't think you're going to get an answer that's going to make any sense to you because, um, you know, if your wife answers, it's because you put your cold feet on me in bed, then, you know, and I'm giving a stupid example, but you would say, well, why was that so terrible? That actually there will not be something that will actually make sense to you. So instead of trying to find an answer that's going to make sense to you, which there probably isn't because you're not going to be able to wrap your head around it, but you can listen to her. You, instead of trying to change her mind, what you need to do is listen. So the most important thing you can say to her are what I call the three most loving words in the English language, which are not I love you, because those are ones easy to say. The three most loving words in the English language, see what you think of this, Matthew, is tell me more. Mm -hmm. And to say, tell me more when you actually, you're not going to want, to, you don't really want to hear more because mm -hmm. the more is going to be how she's drifted away or what you've done or whatever. But just to say, tell me more about that so that you really listen 
you're really actively interested in all of this is an act of profound love. Yes. So instead of trying to stop or block whatever change is going on, tell me more is an invitation to share what that change is for you, even if I don't fully understand it. But I want to know and understand that change. And even though it's painful, even though I'm disappointed. So I'm going to kind of live with this incredible disappointment, this hurt. And instead of trying to get rid of that and push it away by getting angry or, you know, running away or, or attacking or, you know, demanding to know what's going on, I'm going to act on love, which is tell me more. Exactly right. And you might find that um, this actually really listening to her, I mean, my suspicion is if she's always been doing what somebody else wants, she actually has probably never listened to herself. So actually listening to her would help her listen to herself, which would be an act of love. And the fact that you've been able to listen to her in a way that nobody else has beforehand is going to build bridges. It's not going to build walls and you need bridges rather than walls at this moment. And this is the really difficult bit. You've got to stay with the uncertainty because we don't like uncertainty either. I mean, the worst thing you can do is not live with uncertainty because if you go for certainty, she will say, I don't want this relationship anymore. If you say, if you can live with the uncertainty, she might find a way that she does want to come back to the relationship. She doesn't know, which is the reason why she keeps on saying, I don't know. She's in the age of uncertainty. But if you try and push for certainty, that will end the relationship. Or also the uncertainty of, of what the relationship might evolve into. Neither of them maybe know what that is. And if you try to put a lot of pressure on her to figure it out, she may run. Mm. Whereas if we could allow that uncertainty of not knowing... And let us work together. Let's learn together where this relationship could go from here and what form it could take, given the ways that she's changing and the, and the new needs that she's experiencing. Let's do that, which is hard. And again, that's loving in the face of the pain of uncertainty. And you might need some support. Unfortunately, men don't have very much emotional support and it's difficult to ask for it. But, you know, is there a mate who can help you sit with uncertainty? Is there a meditation course that you can do at, uh, through work that will help you sit in the moment? Uh, meditation is all about sitting there with what's there at the moment. All of those sort of kind of things, or maybe think about getting a therapist as well, but um, don't expect your wife to sort out your unhappiness because she's got a lot of stuff that's on her plate at the moment, trying to sort out who she is. But an act of love would be to give her space to find out that and be interested in who that person is. I hope that's been helpful. So, Matthew, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful as a witness here on The Meaningful Life? I think what makes my life meaningful is to be a teacher. And that's pretty much what I've been most of my life, my professional life, is teaching and working with clients and trying to give them new ways of living, new skills, and you know the love of my family, and that is core. And the love of not just my family, but the love of the people I work with, my clients, the people that I encounter, that who I get to know and, and love and care for, all of that I'm very grateful for and it's, it gives me meaning. To be able to act on love in all of those relationships is very meaningful to me, as well as to be a teacher. So those are the things that kind of are the, 
think, the twin pillars of meaning in my life. Unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave the conversation. But if you are a member of our supporters circle, and uh, details will come in a second about how to become a supporter, you can get the bonus material. And in the bonus material, Matthew will be giving us a gratitude meditation. Um, If it's going to clean out the wounds of life, there's going to be a gratitude meditation. And I'm also going to be looking at one of the ideas that he has in his book that is really powerful, the navigation principle. This is the the sort of the way we make big decisions. And each of us comes from a particular place. And actually understanding that place is really powerful. So um, I, I think you'll find that interesting as well. So if you are a listener on the Apple podcast, you'll be able to find there's a button you can go to and you can automatically become a supporter and uh, to buy the uh, bonus material, the same on Spotify, or here comes the details of how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.